Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I am Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, President Biden canceled student loan debt. Is that for real? Oh, well, up to 10 grand. Mm. Uh, we're going to break down what it means for you. We've got an education expert uh, to my right or to my left, depending upon if you're watching us on YouTube, an analysis of all of this, and also maybe a conversation about should you go to college, some statistics around student loan debt and graduates uh, from universities. Plus, later on the program, uh, the fantastic Ellie Honig, CNN senior legal analyst, former federal and state prosecutor. He's going to be on the program breaking down everything with the Trump DOJ investigation, the affidavit release that's upcoming, everything that's happening around the Trump orbit and other legal news that's happening around the country. Ellie is fantastic. And then in our final segment, maybe a story you missed from last week, and maybe a term you don't even know, quiet quitting. I have no idea what that is. I just learned it the other day. We're going to get into that in our final segment. First, I say, actually, before I say hello to Nick Saveri, some housekeeping items. It is now official Thursday, October 27th. The show is live in D.C. We're going to be at City Tap House performing our live show. We've got some fantastic guests, like I've mentioned, lined up on the program. A couple of segments there. We're going to play some games. Food and drink, come on down. It's the private area for City Tap House. We will be recording our live show there. You can be on camera as well as we'll be having a live production company shooting this. So everything will be top notch and will be compliments of the Can We Please Talk podcast. We want to meet you guys and come on down. So come on down to City Tap House. If you live in the D.C. area, we'd love for you to come down there. Uh, you can follow us on social media, IG, TikTok, at Can We Please Talk podcast on Twitter at Can We Please Talk. Shout out to our producer, Tim, who runs all those handles. And he will be posting some information in the coming weeks. We're going to have all the information available there. But like I just said, Thursday, October 27th, we can't wait to see you out in DC. Now I say hello. Speaking of DC, NZ over here. Great transition, Mike, even though those are different letters. Uh, the, the talented Nick Savary, who has drawn some ire from people. Some people want him canned. Some people love him. He's going to address that right now. He's going to tell us how his week has been going. And also that now I get to talk to him two times a week because Can We Please Talk will now have new episodes every Monday and every Friday. We're going to get you caught up on everything happening in the world of news and politics with fantastic guests joining us. Nick Saveri, give me your assessment on all the latest Can We Please Talk news. Uh, excited, man. Um, you know, this show has been incredible. Uh, again, we always talk about just spiraling out of just text messages between you and I um, going to two times a week, you know, 
really excites me. I mean, it, it proves the point that you know our constant back and forths, you know, over text and the um, just the exchanges we have. You know, there's enough content that it warrants another episode. Um, you know, for our fans, we are super appreciative of all the love that we get. Um, the criticisms of me, that's fine. We'll get to that in a second. But um, the fact that we're able to build this into a second episode, that says a lot, folks. You know, we are dedicated to to giving quality content and we want to give more content because there is so much to talk about. And the timing of this is even better knowing we've got midterms. We've got all kinds of things happening, not just within this country, but just globally. Uh, and Mike and I are excited to just take our conversations and bring it to an informed audience, you know, with guests, sometimes just the two of us. And, you know, we're pretty informed ourselves as too. So uh, we're excited to do that. Um, yeah, I laugh at the at the criticisms as I fired back at Mike by a text. Um, you know, for anyone who has an issue with me, which is small, honestly, I mean, from what we see from all the ratings on um, iTunes and such, um, I'm the co-host of a top 200 show on Apple, I, Apple podcasts. That's right. That's right. Honestly, if you think you can do better, grab a mic and an RSS feed and prove us wrong. There, or prove there me wrong for well, that matter. This, well, but, listen, real quick. Yeah. The person that wrote in that and, and sent a, a picture of you, and I oh, said, I maybe that. we'll start doing this for the show with merchandise. <laughs> Urinal cakes with Nick Savary and myself's face on it. This is for male audience now. Uh, I thought that that was a good merchandise idea. Nick had some other thoughts. We're going to leave it on there on the text part. But uh uh, how's your week going other than that? And, and, the, uh, oh, and by the way, we got a lot of feedback. People like you and I. They like the show and it's proven out in the ratings and reviews, man. More important. I mean, it, that's kind of what warrants us sometimes doing a show by ourselves. You know, when we started, we said, like, who, who are we? Right. Like, right. who's just going to listen to us? Right. You know, we're now getting a lot of traffic coming in that we're at a place where, in addition to guests, which is important because we want to talk to inform people, it's the mission of this show. But we also are building a brand and a following of people who are just legit interested in what we have to say. As you mentioned, that person who shouted us out um, of us being a news source for her. That means a hell of a lot. So that's that's important to me. Um, just on us personally, things are great. Um, my oldest is going back to school on you know on Monday. Oh, so right. like many people in America, you know, you've got your kid back at school. It's a big thing. She goes to second grade. We're super excited about that. It's also been a quick summer, uh, so just time has gone by. But yeah, she starts a new school year, and we're excited. And the fall's here, man. We got football coming up in a couple of weeks. That's you right. know, super excited about that too. So that's everything on our side in Eastern Pennsylvania. What about you in uh, Florida? Oh, on there. Thank you. I appreciate that. I sir. took the feedback. Uh, that's he <laughs> did take the feedback, or you're fired. Uh, the uh, it's been great, man. You know, uh, school has started down here, so my oldest is in preschool. So that was. Fun to see how she's been adjusting to that. It's been, I mean, that's been the best, you know, coming home, excited, excited to go there, right? You know, like how how long that will last? Will that wear off? We'll find out. But I'm excited for football too. I can't wait. Obviously, people know I have a day job that's in sports. So it's really exciting that I work with so many colleges and NFL teams coming up, you know, to support them during the sports season. So uh, more on the sports front uh, later on, you can check out. Uh, the show that I do over on theanalyst.com that will be coming out again this fall with college football and NFL preview. So appreciate the shout out there, Nick. Let's get into our first segment because it's in your wheelhouse and it's in your area of expertise. And this is the news that broke uh, before we started recording this about President Biden canceling up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt for most borrowers. The president announced he's going to forgive $10,000 in federal student debt for most borrowers, delivering financial relief to millions of Americans. Now, President Biden will also cancel up to $20,000 for recipients of Pell Grants. We're going to get into that in a sec with our education expert, Nick Saveri. Nearly 45% of borrowers, this is according to CNBC, or almost 20 million people would have their debt fully canceled, according to the White House. And that's with these two things going into effect. Um, let's hear from the president right now earlier today as he spoke. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. Both of these targeted actions are for families who need it the most. Working and middle-class people hit especially hard during the pandemic, making under $125,000 a year. 
I understand not everyone thing, every, uh, not everything I'm announcing today is going to make everybody happy. Something is too much. Something is too little. But I believe my plan is responsible and fair. It focuses the benefit on middle class and working families. The president also said he's going to extend the, the payment pause on most federal student loans one final time, and that'll last through the end of the year in December uh, 31st of 22. Uh, I don't know if you heard there in that clip, uh, but also President Biden said that 95% of borrowers would benefit from the plan. And I mentioned it, uh, uh, earlier, that's about 43 million people. Of those, over 60% are Pell Grant recipients. All right, Nick, uh, before I get your takeaways on this, I did want to shout out some statistics. Um, actually, you know what? Let's get your takeaways first because you work in the education space and a lot of people, there's been the great debate about whether or not to go to college, You know how much universities and schools are charging. There was talk about maybe we should start making um, junior colleges free. I remember President Biden campaigning off of that, right? The ability for people to go to a two-year school, get their associate's degree. I want to get some of your takeaways first, uh, you know, 30,000 foot view as you work in education, you've been a teacher, you've working with so many school districts now. And the next goal for a lot of these kids in, in that K to 12 setting is what, right? When they get to 12, it's to go to college potentially, right? Or a trade school, or vocational school, whatever it may be. Your takeaways when you heard uh, the president announce this, We've been talking about, is it enough? Like he just said in the clip, some people are going to be mad. Some people are not are not going to be happy. Some people are going to be happy. Uh, what were your overall thoughts? Yeah. Um, yeah, I fall in this middle category of it's great. I think first, there obviously are going to be people that, you know, their student loan debt is in excess of $10,000. Or even if they're, you know, if they're a couple and you know, excess of twenty thousand, so it's not going to completely, you know, absolve their debt. Um, but it's cuts; it can cut for many significantly into. You know, the administration talks about how many people may have all of their debt removed. You know, from this, um, I also fall into the category of the federal government could do nothing, could forgive nothing. If, if we're really going to be honest with ourselves for a second, um, this is not something I'm not going to rant here about young voters here. I'm going to give you all a break. This argument about student loan forgiveness is not something that's even getting through Congress. This is only coming through the White House. So we can all be grateful to Joe Biden for this. Um, this is not build, building enough momentum in Congress because you don't have enough people who care enough about this. And that's why it's important to vote. But I think it's a great step. I think any time you can reduce any level of student loan debt, that's a good thing. Let's not forget the student, the federal student loans include interest. Now, obviously, yes, the interest is theoretically supposed to you know go towards future loans. But as I've always asked myself this question, like why is the federal government in the business of trying to make money on us in in the form of student loans? I never understood it. I mean, simply this could be coming from taxes. But so I'm I celebrate. Any any level of debt relief, if this is getting someone just that step closer to not having to worry about student debt, that's all the better. From an economic standpoint, just looking at the thirty thousand foot view, you know this puts money back into people's pockets. Now, ultimately, the folks, the federal government is Las Vegas; it's never going to lose. So, money back in your pocket. What's going to happen? You are likely going to spend it, and what you spend it on is taxable. One way or the other, the federal government's going to get their money back, or they're going to get money from you. It's simply how this works. But any form of debt relief for folks, especially a generation right now with millennials and now Gen Z, this is hard. Mike, you led this off with the question about you were asking some form or another, is college worth it? And I struggle with that question because I think we're getting to a place of where do we start to associate college with what trade or vocation you're trying to get into? Um, which is a very old world way of thinking about. It. We used to not think so much about, um, well, I need college to get a, a particular job. I mean, you still do, obviously, but I, I can't answer that for anyone. You know, my, my kids will be old enough one day to go off to college. And, and when they're old enough, like that's the question, right? <laughs> like, is it worth it? Um, it's hard to say because I also believe, and this is something I say on behalf of my company, you know, the 21st century tells us that there are so many different types of jobs out there. You know, we're seeing people building their brands through social media. We're seeing people, you know, building, you know, building themselves a, their own market, you know, through all these different vehicles, you know, in terms of the uh, internet economy. So, who's to say a college degree is going to get you any further financially? 
I think it still carries a lot of weight. I still think there's a lot of significance to the opportunity to be in a space where you get to connect with other different other kinds of people. But do you need to do college? Do you need to be in college to do that? Absolutely not. Not these days. Uh, but I can't answer that for anyone. But what I simply would say is, it does incur a significant amount of debt, and unfortunately for many Americans, staring at that level of debt. You ask yourself, is what I'm going to do professionally going to offset that? Or am I going to be sitting with a mountain of, of student loan debt that my vocation is not going to take care of? And if that's the case, and that limits me in terms of buying a home or limits me in where I want to live, um, it limits my buying power as a consumer. And these are all the things you have to, fa- you have to factor in. And I think this generation now the previous two generations are coming to grips with asking themselves that very hard question. Is college worth it when you're staring at thousands of dollars of debt and a job market that doesn't necessarily tell you that you're going to walk right into a position? You know What yeah. we've seen in terms of this migration or just this change in the labor market over the last couple of years during the pandemic, that certainly benefited my, people of our generation. You know, We have a variety of different skills that we came out of college with regardless of our degrees, but we have experience though. Right. Like I'm 20 some odd years out of college working various different positions. My resume is impressive. I mean, more so than person getting hold just on, getting I mean, out. Oh, uh, well, hold on. Relatively gonna, speaking, no, right? On, okay. I'm but kidding. um but I I carry that with me, much like you do, to someone coming out of college now, they're not gonna have that. So those type of options, that type of ceiling for where you can move on to or where you can get into professionally can be very limited. And is a college degree going to give you that level of access? I think it's getting very, very vocation specific, you know, like in medicine and law um, in other fields. Absolutely. Um, beyond those, I, I really don't, I, I can't tell you, honestly. Right. Well, we're going to get into actually some statistics uh, pre-pandemic because uh, you fed into the, uh, the follow-up perfectly there. But one thing I will want to say, just my, my high-level takeaways is I have none. Uh, you know, like I, I've seen people putting on stories about, uh, well, I went through this the hard way and I paid this and I took out, you know, I had two jobs and I had a couple loans and I took out and I'm, and I'm just like, because you went through the road that was very hard to travel doesn't mean that people need to necessarily follow in that footsteps. That's the first thing. The second thing is to President Biden's point that he said there in that clip, um, I always look at pieces of legislation, and I've said this before on the program, through who is paying for this, paying for this, whether it be economically, paying for this, whether it be emotionally, paying for this, meaning the impact. Who will this impact? The president clearly points that out, that 43 million people, due to the assessment that they have from all the federal loan uh, grants or whatever that are out there available in their database of the people that are under $20,000 in student loan debt, either through Pell Grants or through you know federal programs and the 10,000, this is how many people have this. Wiping that out, that debt, that monthly payment of one, two, three hundred, four hundred dollars $400, whatever it may be, we'll put money back into the pockets like Nick mentioned, and they'll get to spend that. Uh, I know you had something quick on, on some of the takes that are happening out there, but like I said, I have no real take. This is helping people so uh, why don't you want to help people again on the impact part? But go ahead, real quick on your part. Yeah, Mike, I, the only thing I'll add is that's a really tired argument that I hear from folks. I've been reading this um, more in right-leaning media. I feel like I think I even saw some editorials actually in the Washington Post about this of um, how this is not not helping others. And they're not from the state. I understand for those who say, well, this is not enough money. I hear you. But again, it could be zero. That I mean, let's. I'll be very honest with you. Again, this is not a law. This is the president, you know, right? You know, putting this down on pen. But to those who say that this could be harmful, this is not a good idea. There is no viable argument to substantiate that. Any form of debt relief economically benefits all of us. You know, <laughs> again, if you have less debt, you spend more money. The economy benefits, and the economy, especially in the process of, as we're going through inflation. Why in the world are we worried about you know just digging through people's pockets? And and Mike, a lot of it comes back to what you just said of well, I paid off my loan. Why can't they? Shut up. Honestly, stop being petty. Right. This is a good thing. Forgive it. And honestly, with the rising cost of college, Mike, you and I both went to Rutgers. At the time, I at the time we went. If you looked at what the per year, I mean, like per year cost was between room and board, yeah, um, out of state tuition, out of state. Out of state yeah significantly less. If college costs what it did right now, 
there's not enough Pell Grants in the world, man, that would have helped, that would have helped me out. I really don't know if I could have gone. So for me to tell someone, and I have a younger cousin who graduated not too long ago, to tell anyone, hey, pay your loans because I did, that's just stupid. Yeah. You know, uh, I was going to say when I got out of school, I had a private loan company and I hate sharing personal stuff, but I had a private loan company and I'm, I'm over here not making that much a month. And I had like a six, $700 payment because it was a private loan company that couldn't be consolidated. Yeah. And I was, you know, you're, you are drowning to a point in debt. You got to think of the, the millions of people that are under a certain age. Like you said, don't have the experience. I want to get real quick into the statistics, but high level, our producer, Tim sent us this. The White House, as we were recording this, tweeted out a lot of Republican pundits and some Republican uh, sitting members of Congress, the disingenuous ones that we've talked about in the show, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, like a representative, Matt Gaetz. Um, they've been going on making the news circuits across the Newsmax and OANs and saying, you know, some things like for our government just to say, OK, your debt is completely forgiven. It's completely unfair. And the White House has been quoting statistics of how much these folks have had forgiven in PPP loans due to the pandemic. Marjorie Taylor Greene had $183,504, for example, forgiven in PPP loans. So if you want to see the Twitter feed of the White House, whether or not that's incredibly petty, we'll get to that uh, in, in another episode. Here but for the petty. Yeah. One, one quick thing on employment rates of college graduates. We were talking about this pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. The National Center for Education Statistics attained data regarding the employment rate for college graduates between the ages of 25 to 34. This was back in 2019, remember where this data, so at end of 2019, going into 2020 is when the pandemic kind of started. College graduates with a bachelor's degree or higher who are aged 25 to 34 had an employment rate of 87%. And for people who had some college had an employment rate of at least 80%. Okay, for people who didn't complete high school, their employment rate was 57%. Now, in, in 2020, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, now this is the full year of 2020, about a million 20 to 29-year-old students obtained their bachelor's degree, right? And then by 2020, about 692,000 of those total recent college graduates were employed. So a little bit more than half, what was that, probably 59 to 60% of the million students that graduated between January to October of 2020 were employed. Uh, one thing that kind of stuck out to me uh, real quick was the earning potentials part of this. Okay. For those who were between the ages of 22 to 27 that had bachelor's degree that graduated in that time period, they were earning an average median income of $44,000. In contrast to high school diploma holders, so you're getting into the conversation of do you go to college or not, they were earning an average of $33,000 annually. Bachelor's degree holders are 50% less likely to be unemployed compared to high school degree holders. 60% of bachelor degrees that are given out in the U.S. come from a lot of the public colleges, which obviously we talked about. We went to a public college in Rutgers, a state university that has you know, in-state tuition and out-of-state tuition. Um, so those who have a bachelor's degree, last that I'll leave you with, earn an average of about $32,000 more per year. So the debate rages on about whether or not to go to college, uh, we will get more into that, and we're also going to get an economist on the an economist, excuse me, on the show that we've talked about to kind of break down a little bit of not only the Inflation Reduction Act, but also some of this and what this will do to the economy because that's been the other part of this argument. People are like, "Well, this is going to raise this, this is going to raise that." We're going to bring somebody on that knows what they're talking about in that regard. Speaking of bringing somebody on that knows what they're talking about. All the news that's been making headlines with Trump and the FBI executed search warrant and the DOJ, and now the court battle that's happening, the affidavit that's coming out, if you're listening to this on a Friday, nobody better than a former federal and state prosecutor, CNN senior legal analyst, and the host of the Third Degree Podcast, available wherever you get your podcast, Ellie Honig, when we come back after the break. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. Kitcaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. 
Nick, the presenting sponsor of Can We Please Talk is Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, this Pennsylvania company has been making their passion of bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world, roasted fresh to order in eco-friendly smart roasters. They're committed to quality, service, integrity, approachability, and sustainability. I know you've ordered a few packs there. You're going to tell the people because we all know what a big coffee snob you are. I live the K-Cup life, and I've ordered some of the Colombian roast and the breakfast blend. It's delicious. Your take, sir, on Fresh Roasted Coffee, a Pennsylvania-based company for the man in eastern Pennsylvania who drinks coffee regularly. Yeah, Mike, that's right. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, shop local, right? <laughs> As always. Uh, yeah, I just most recently bought the flavored coffee set, which is six different incredible flavors. That's on its way getting shipped. I had that just ground, you know, for when it gets here. Mike, one of my favorite parts is that they allow you to take a, not allow, what am I talking about here? They give you a quiz just to get a sense of your taste. You know, so I took that quiz. I got recommended Sumatra, you know, just a great single origin coffee. But in addition to that, Mike, they have a great section, just the learn section. If you go to their website, freshroastedcoffee.com, there's a just on when you click down, there's a learn section. For those of you who are not necessarily in the coffee game as deep as Mike and I are, you can learn everything from how to use your French press, how to use a Chemex. So they're, they're not just selling you coffee and tea, by the way, something That's very right. important. You know, a lot of places try to separate these two ancient beverages, not fresh, fresh roasted coffee. Nope. So they have a huge variety of tea as well. My wife's more of a tea drinker than a coffee drinker. So I'm going to be hooking her up, but Mike, it's an awesome company. So many things available on the website. Um, and I think that, those who are listeners of the show can benefit from listening to us and purchasing from there, if I'm correct. That's right. Because all you got to do right now, if you're in our show notes page or whatever audio podcast platform you're listening to us, you click the link that's available right there. That link will have a special promo code discount applied to whatever you buy from freshroastedcoffee.com. Head to that link in our show notes page and get in on some of this great tasting coffee today. All right, Nick, what is our show tagline? We talk to people who know what they're talking about, man. That, that's <laughs> right, Nick. And in that vein, with all the Trump, FBI, warrants, search of Mar-a-Lago, the DOJ discussion, you, you know, listen, who can we turn to but one of our experts? He is a friend. He's the Obi-Wan to you and I just being regular Jedis. He's former federal and state prosecutor, CNN legal analyst, host of the Third Degree Podcast. We're going to get into that in a second because last week's note to the community was awesome. But And he's a Rutgers grad, which is probably why we love him so much. much and that is Ellie Honig. Ellie, Mike Leon, Nick Severi, thanks so much again for hopping on the podcast with us. Mike and Nick, I'm, I'm thrilled to be back with you. Um, love what you guys do, the Rutgers connection. Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi is is a good reference thank you um i'm not sure where he ranks on the jedi list though i mean yoda obviously is one i would say luke is up there anakin is up there so obi-wan may be like the fourth ranked jedi but i'll take it i'll take okay it. all right well if we're going by your <laughs> rankings right it's maybe an insult yoda, man. what are you doing <laughs> i mean i, I was know, going by generic uh dipped out <laughs> after a while. can, can i, I just give, can some... i just give you guys a, a quick uh sort of name drop um, always you mentioned, or I don't know if you mentioned, but when I did my first book, and my second one's coming out soon uh, in January, but when I did my first book, the only dispute I had with my publisher, with HarperCollins, they sent me the contract. It was great. 
but it said, um, we reserve the right to have a professional voice reader do your audio book. And I said, I, I want to do it myself. And they, they gave, they said, okay, you can do it. And then when it came time to record it, which I actually did at Rutgers in, in a recording booth there, um, before we started, they said, okay, so which professional voice reader do you want to do it? And I said, no, it's in the contract. I'm going to do it. And um, somebody tweeted and said, are you going to be doing your own audio book? And I said, yes, I will. You know, it's personal, a lot of first person stories. And Mark Hamill, of course, you guys know, who oh, played yeah. Luke Skywalker, jumped into the conversation and said, I believe that every author should read their own book. And it's much better that way. And it's much more authentic. And so I immediately forwarded that to my editor. I was like, Luke Skywalker says I should read my own book. But anyway, that made me think of Mark Hamill, Jedi. Jedi. I remember, I think I might have shouted out the last time you were on that when I listened to the audiobook when you had done it, it was very conversational. Like it was like, it was very, it's personal, but it's like, I'm enjoying this. Like I'm driving my car somewhere in upstate New York or wherever. I'm like, Ellie's with me. But it's like to anyone who's an Audible fan or wherever you get your audiobooks from. Yeah. It's well done. Yeah, like, thank I, you. I, I go. Yeah, I'm going for the sequel. Hopefully, you're back behind the mic again for that too. Yeah. I will be. Well, I'll, I'll give you. I'll tell you a, the, one of the nicest compliments I got when I was done doing the audio recording after four days. It's exhausting. They there's a director. There's guys who know how to like a movie director. Um, and he was in my ear once in a while. He would go say that last line again. You sped it up or you swallowed a word or whatever. And at the end, he said, "Well, you definitely wrote this book." <laughs> Meaning like. <laughs> It's written how you talk, which is always sort of what I strive for, whether I'm on air or with you guys or whatever. So uh, I took that as a nice compliment. So thank well, you, Nick. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, when the next book comes out, we'll have you back on again yeah, because yeah. we we got the first book over my shoulder for those of you I watching on YouTube. Yeah, um, that looks good. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Ellie, let's get into it because I, the first thing I want to ask you right off the bat, and I don't know if you've mentioned this on other shows that you've been on. I happened to be watching a few weeks ago when the news broke about the FBI executed search warrant at yeah. Mar-a-Lago. You were on with Aaron Burnett on out front at seven o'clock. Yeah. So the, the news was kind of breaking fast. But I want to get your just your personal take as a former prosecutor that's done this, that's executed that stuff. And you talked about it on the show, but you didn't really like give too much of the personal side of it. Like, yeah. what were some of your takeaways of not only everything that happened with the FBI executing this, the magnitude of who was involved in it, and then also the backlash that you've seen subsequent from this yeah. with everything that's, you know, the vitriol being aimed at FBI agents and the DOJ overall? So I'll give you guys a little behind the scenes. I was getting ready to go on the show with Aaron on a totally different story. I think it was like the the sort of day after the Alex Jones verdict or something. It was a slow news day. I actually didn't think they were even going to use me because I didn't think there was any legal. They said, no, we're going to do this thing on Alex Jones, top of the show, be ready. So I'm in my seat at my studio and 654, 655, I'm just sort of mindlessly scrolling Twitter and I see... FBI search warrant, Mar what? And at first I thought it was BS or something, but I realized that the person who I saw had tweeted is Caitlin Collins, who's our, you know, our chief White House. I mean, that's money in the bank. If Caitlin tweets it, it is fact. And so I immediately start texting Aaron and her executive producer, are we pivoting to this? And they're like, stand by, stand by. And then they're like, yes, hard pivot, all in on this. And we did the whole show on it. Um, but that happens on air sometimes. Um, my first reaction was, holy crap, um, search warrants happen all the time every day, but to do a search warrant where you're going into the private home of the former president is a big deal. And knowing DOJ and knowing Merrick Garland, not personally, but knowing how Merrick Garland operates, he's very careful. He's very reticent and he wants very carefully to avoid anything that might be political. And so my first thought was, well, wow, in order to get a search warrant, not to get overly law school here, but you have to establish probable cause of a crime to a federal judge. So we knew that happened. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness. I mean, that's a big deal. That's not enough to charge, but it's it's substantial. Um, I then thought, boy, oh, boy, I really hope for the, for the good of everybody that Merrick Garland has thought this through. And this is sort of a last resort, because legally, you don't have to show that it's a last resort. But you knew that political backlash was coming. And Mike, you asked about this. And I will tell you, the political backlash was actually more and more intense than I anticipated. Trump weaponized it and his um, political supporters jumped right in with him. Now, I think he would have done it more, could have done it much more effectively. I think by putting out nonsense lies about uh, evidence was planted and Joe Biden ordered this, um, I think you undermine yourself a bit. 
but um, he really rallied support. And I think there's still there's still so much unknown as we sit here now. I guess we'll see part of the affidavit tomorrow, which will answer some questions, but certainly not all of them. Um, so it's a big step. But one thing that has come out since that I think has has calmed some people's minds and I think is important to know is it's not as if DOJ went from zero to search warrant. They negotiated and went back and forth archives and DOJ with Trump's people for over a year. Every day, the timeline gets longer and longer. They tried to subpoena. They tried to ask nicely and they kept on getting some of the documents, but not all. And I think at a certain point, DOJ just said, these are classified documents, some of them highly classified. We can't just have them out there in a beach house, basically. So I think it was smart that DOJ tried all the easy ways before they went with a search warrant. Ellie, I'm going to put you in an uncomfortable situation. In addition to the in, the execution of a warrant at Mar-a-Lago, you know, we know, obviously, and you talked about this recently on, on your show, yeah. what's going on in New York, what's happening in Georgia. You're on Trump's legal team. You're looking at what feels like a multifaceted series of legal battles. What's the one that's keeping you up at night? Uh, Georgia, Fulton County. Um, but they, there's a big turn that's about to happen here. Uh, the, it looks like Georgia's moving the most quickly now, although Georgia did nothing that prosecutor a year and a half to see the grand jury. And now she's actually sort of paying the price for that because some of the people she's subpoenaing are political figures. And they're saying, you dragged this out until it was the eve of midterms and the eve of the Georgia governor's election. But she seems dead set on charging. Um, she's Look, I've questioned her political um, motivations. She's made mistakes the DA, she got thrown off one of her cases because she had a political conflict of interest. She had done a fundraiser for the opponent of somebody she subpoenaed. Um, she has done a media tour, which I don't think is smart to do about a pending case and has sort of wink, wink, nod, nodded, suggested she's definitely going to charge Trump. She says, oh, I'm not afraid of anybody, that kind of thing. It's not, she should not be out doing that. Um, but I think she's the most likely to charge him. However, if they do indict Donald Trump. People need to understand it is miles and miles between an indictment, especially a county level indictment and a conviction. Um, not to get overly legalistic here, but the first thing Donald Trump will do if he's charged by a, a county level prosecutor, which he is, county level elected partisan fundraising prosecutors, he'll go to the federal courts. And he has a very favorable federal courts down there in the 11th Circuit, which is one of the most conservative courts in the country. And he'll say, this violates principles of federalism, meaning the principle that we can't have state and local officials impeding the function of the executive branch and the federal government. He'll say, if every president has to worry that some one of the 2000 plus elected local partisan county DAs might indict him, it's going to really impede the ability of people to to function as president. Um, there will be a heated legal argument over that, but I think he's got a fairly good chance, Trump, of of getting the case thrown out by the federal courts before he ever even has to worry about a jury. And if he goes to a jury, one of my big criticisms of all the prosecutors here is just how long this has taken. Because at this point, even if they do indict Donald Trump, they're not going to try him. They're not going to be able to try him until realistically 2024. By that point, he could be a candidate. He could be the front runner. He could be a nominee. And everyone goes, well, he's not popular in certain areas of the country. Okay. But you need 12-0. You get one Trump juror and, and they're going to hang the jury. I mean, everyone says, oh, but jurors will listen to instructions and will follow the law. Sure. But but if you're Trump's lawyer, you want Trump jurors on there. And if you're the prosecutor, you don't want Trump voters on there. Um, so I think he could well get indicted. I'm not going to put a percentage on it, but it would not at all surprise me if, if the DA in, in Fulton County indicts him. And it would not at all surprise me if that case ha faces major, major obstacles. Ellie, let's get back to the, the Mar-a-Lago uh, part of this, because you just mentioned as we're recording this and this episode is dropping, you're listening to this on Friday, Justice Department was ordered to release the redacted Mar-a-Lago search warrant affidavit. Legal beagle here, uh, give it, break it down. What is the affidavit yeah. versus the warrant, the differences of a redacted one and the investigation that's still ongoing? What does this all mean for the people that are listening to this that, that, that don't really know the legal jargon behind it? So by the time this case is over, every person in the United States is going to be an expert on search warrants and how they work. I'm going to make it my goal. Um, there are there are three key documents here. We've already seen two of them. We saw the search warrant itself, which is three pages long. It's mostly a form. The main thing we learned from that is where they wanted to search certain areas of Mar-a-Lago and what crimes they were investigating. Essentially, it's mishandling of defense information, concealment or destruction of government documents and obstruction of an official proceeding. 
Um, then we saw the three-page receipt for property, which listed in very general terms, box of documents, 30-something items. But the big takeaway there was there was all level of classified materials, including the very top level, which is top secret SCI, which is segmented, segmented compartmental information. Um, so, but the, those documents are generally public. Those are given to the suspect, in this case, Donald Trump, I shouldn't say the suspect, but the person whose premises are searched on the day of the search. So those documents are generally public. They, they came out publicly a week or so ago. The affidavit is a different monster entirely. It is the long narrative statement that the prosecutor and the FBI put together to bring to a judge to say, here's our probable cause. It basically lays out the investigation chapter and verse. I've done more of those than I can count. If I had to guess, I mean, we, we are going to see a redacted version of this tomorrow. I'd say it could be 50, 100 pages, somewhere in there. It is a much bigger, much denser, much more detailed document than the ones we've already seen. Now, what we're going to see when this is unsealed is not the whole affidavit. The judge has said has said to DOJ, you can redact, you can take out anything relating to identities of witnesses, law enforcement. Um, uh, you can take out anything relating to grand jury materials, meaning any interviews the grand jury has done or any subpoena documents. And you can take out anything relating to your ongoing investigation and your strategy. That's not going to leave a lot. Um, but it will leave us with some interesting things. You know, we're all going to get out our microscopes and magnifying glasses and try to figure out whatever we can from whatever we get tomorrow. But look, it's a lot more. In most cases, the affidavit, um, virtually every case, the affidavit doesn't come out until after someone's been charged. So Trump is going to get a bit of an advanced look here. Does that does that release potentially harm the case in the sense of, you know, with all those redactions, it seems like we're about to play this out now in the court of public opinion. So yeah. if what we're seeing, you know, obviously from the standpoint of the media and obviously a lot of requests went in, if all that comes in and what we're seeing is a pared down version and not if we are, does that stand any chance of potentially altering the perception that we all have that, you know, obviously when um, when the warrant was executed and, you know, they're going and the FBI goes into Mar-a-Lago, we all have a certain perception of clearly there was enough to, you know, probable cause. But yeah. does the affidavit of redacted version potentially alter public perception of, of this case? Um, it's not going to answer all our questions, but it is going to give us more information. My guess is it's a bit of a Rorschach test. I think people will look at it and, and find the parts of it that reinforce their views. Uh, I suspect people are going to be able to look at people who believe the search was warranted and, and necessary and say, aha, this this shows that it was necessary. I think Trump supporters are going to be able to look at it and say, First of all, it's redacted half to death, I would guess. And they're going to be able to say, as a talking point, Donald Trump wanted this whole thing out, but DOJ and the judge are hiding all this stuff under the black ink from you. I mean, Donald Trump has a has a political play to make here, which he surely will make. So it's not going to settle anything. It is going to move us towards more information. I mean, I think the one thing that it really will advance for us is the notion that this was a last resort for DOJ, that they tried for over a year. Uh, and, and if anything, I even made this point on CNN, I think it was this morning. Um, you can even ask the question why DOJ was so solicitous, why DOJ was so willing to let him keep these documents to ask nicely. I mean, at a certain point, these are classified SCI documents. You just go get them. And it took DOJ over a year before they made the decision to do that. So if anything, you might even question DOJ. Why, why did you take so long? Let's talk about DOJ for a second. You know, Ellie, on, previously when you were on, one of the questions we talked about was, you know, what is a what's a grade to give Merrick Garland as AG? Again, mm -hmm. we did this, you know, you know, yeah. a while back. So, yeah, it was inconclusive. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And many okay. people you know, had their respective thoughts about it. Over the past few months, we've seen um, an expeditious shift. I think it's fair to say with DOJ and yep. where the AG is. Um, in measuring or looking at where the DO, where DOG is now, Garland as an AG, has your perception changed? Uh, a, a bit, yeah. Um, here's what I give Merrick Garland high, very high marks on. Um, he has been credible. Um, he has not lied to the American public. He has been honest. DOJ has not been caught with its hand in the cookie jar. Ordinarily, this is base level stuff, but coming after Bill Barr, who, as I argue in the book, lied to us constantly, this is important, that he has helped to restore DOJ's credibility. I also give Merrick Garland a lot of credit for keeping DOJ independent. 
He clearly is not taking orders from Joe Biden. He did not coordinate or inform the White House of this search based on what he has said and the White House has said. There's no evidence to the contrary. Um, he is not involving in any way the White House in prosecutorial decisions. In fact, there was a moment when Joe Biden was asked by one of our CNN reporters, do you think that people who defy congressional subpoenas from the January 6th committee should be prosecuted? And Biden said, yes, I do. And DOJ immediately issued a statement saying, we don't take orders about prosecution from anybody. And I thought that was a good move by Merrick Garland. So I give him very high marks on those two things. And those are important. Um, ordinarily, like I said, they're, they're a given with DOJ and the attorney general. But after the Bill Barr reign, um, they were in tatters and needed to be repaired. Um, with respect to his investigation of January 6th, to be sure, he has expanded that and he has finally, finally shifted his focus from just the low-level rabble who went into the Capitol, which had to be prosecuted, but that was all he was focused on. And his talking point was always, well, we're going to start at the bottom and work our way up. And I'm sitting here thinking, that is not how a good prosecutor operates. Yes, you get the guys who went in, but you don't have to wait until you flip the, the wackos in face paint. You can go right at the White House and right at the advisors. Well, the January 6th committee beat him to it and, and really put him to shame and seemingly sort of lit a spark. And now He's going back and interviewing a lot of the people who we first learned of through the committee, Cassidy Hutchinson, Pat Cipollone, um, other Pat Philbin, others like that. So I don't know where Merrick Garland's going to land. I don't know if he's going to charge Donald Trump. I don't know if he's going to charge any of the power players around Donald Trump. I do know this, though. I think it's already too late. I think he has delayed too long. We are now a year and seven months out plus from January 6th. He's not going to indict anybody before midterms. So we're realistically looking at two years plus out from January 6th. And I think when you take that long, you send a message um, that this is not that urgent. And I think as a practical matter, like I said, with Georgia, you're going to have to look at a jury someday. And if you're trying a guy in 2024 while he's on the campaign trail as a nominee or a front runner, one of the two major parties, it makes your task of getting 12 to zero for conviction on your jury extraordinarily difficult. And I think Merrick Garland, if he had gone right at the top, like he could have, he could, there's no reason he couldn't have indicted this case in September, October of 2021. And everyone goes, oh, but these things, investigations take time. Investi I know, I did investigations for 14 years. I'm aware of it. This case is very complicated. It is not the most complicated case in US history. There's no reason with the resources of DOJ, if they had been properly directed and go on right at the top in an aggressive manner, there's no reason they couldn't have indicted this thing in six, seven months. Speaking of the previous attorney general, uh, there was some news that broke yeah. about the Justice Department releasing the unredacted bar memos and detailing the decision not to charge former President Trump with obstructing the Russia probe. And then I started thinking, God, if we could only get somebody on that examined the last attorney general and wrote a book about it. But <laughs> I don't know anybody out there that's written. Oh, Ellie. Oh, hey, what's going on? Hatchet, hey, man. Uh, how paperback. Now in paperback. That's right. Now in paperback. They added uh, the national bestseller tag onto it. So, Ellie, that news that that recently just came down. Yeah. Break that down for us and how it feeds into the book that you wrote overall and what Bill Barr actually did with the Justice Department. Yeah. So basically, the, the bottom line on this one is Bill Barr lied to the American public and then he lied about those lies. That's sort of the bottom line of this. So we all remember, I think it, boy, it feels like ancient history, but I guess it was uh, 2019 when Robert Mueller issued his report and he had all these findings on obstruction of justice. He laid out 10 different incidences of potential obstruction of justice. Three or four of them were, were pretty locks, rock solid in terms of being crimes. The others were maybe close to the line. Um, Bill Barr gets that report first. Nobody, he doesn't let anybody else sees it. And he issues this infamous four page letter where he completely mischaracterizes the report. He has sent Bob Mueller sent him a letter at the time saying, you've completely mischaracterized my work. Multiple federal judges have since found that Barr lied, distorted about, uh, about the Mueller report. Okay. So, and that action by Barr is one of the main focus of my book. And I argue because Barr was so dishonest, because he was so manipulative, he really bailed Trump out of the Mueller, uh, any real consequences for obstruction of justice on Mueller. Now, fast forward a couple of years, a public transparency group called Crew, Citizens for, I don't know exactly what they stand for, uh, but an ethics group, um, files a lawsuit and says, we want any documents, any memos from inside DOJ about this decision to declare that Donald Trump had not committed obstruction. And DOJ says, well, there is a memo but it's what we call deliberative. And, me, and if it's deliberative, 
you don't get it public. It stays inside DOJ. And the argument that Bill Barr's Justice Department made to the judge was this was a memo that Bill Barr consulted with and he was thinking very hard about these legal issues. And and it sort of lays out the internal thinking of the Justice Department. Well, the judge saw that memo, the federal judge, and she said, that's not what this is. This is a cover your ass memo. This is a memo that wasn't completed until afterwards. And essentially, she says, it's just a hypothetical exercise, but it was already predetermined that they wouldn't be charging Donald Trump. Now, here's a wrinkle. So the judge says it has to go over to the public, but DOJ has a chance to appeal. But by the time this decision comes down, guess who's attorney general? Merrick Garland, because enough time had passed. So now Garland's got this decision to make. And you know what Garland did? He appealed it on Barr's behalf. He could have said, nope, no appeal. They got caught with their hands in the cookie jar. They lied to the court. Memo goes out. Garland appealed. And then two days ago, the Court of Appeals said, same thing the district court judge said. That's not what this memo is. This is not what Bill Barr tried to tell us it is. This is not a deliberative memo. This is an after the fact, paper the file, CYA memo. And so it comes out. Now, Garland could have appealed again to the Supreme Court, but he finally said enough's enough. And so now we've seen the memo and that's exactly what it is. It is flimsy. The legal analysis is garbage. Um, and it's a shame that Barr tried to hide it from us and he tried to hide, hide it from us through dishonesty. And it's a shame that Merrick Garland um, appealed it because Merrick Garland should have done the right thing and said, no, they were dishonest about what this letter is. I'm putting it out there. So we can try to delve. I don't know what Merrick Garland's motivation was. Maybe he was trying to not look political or whatever. But uh, it's really a, a disgraceful moment in DOJ's history, primarily for Barr. But it's also a, it's also a mark against Merrick Garland. I feel like every time I listen to Ellie Honig or whenever I'm watching him on CNN, I come away so much smarter. And that minor in criminal justice that I had from Rutgers University, I should have made it my major. He had I should to have went that. to law he school. He had to bring it back up. I had to, I had to bring it back up. We can talk about how I took well, the LSAT just to challenge my girlfriend at the time. But uh, Ellie, you are fantastic. And I want to tease out real quick. N no joke. I was I sent this to Nick. Your yeah. last episode and note to the cafe community ha. about A.G. James campaigning off of the Trump stuff. And I encourage people go download, yeah. listen to the third degree podcast and that note that Ellie sent out to the community because it was fantastic and really breaks down the analysis of why Trump pled the fifth and why it doesn't matter how many times he pled the fifth in that thing. So go listen yeah. to that. Uh, CNN senior legal analyst, former federal and state prosecutor, professor at Rutgers. I mean, this guy does everything. Ellie, <laughs> we can't thank you enough for coming on the program. Continued success to you, my friend. Please stay safe. Thanks, guys. I'm grateful to both of you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much. Nick, today's sponsor of the podcast is 800 Florals. Nick, when was the last time you bought your your wife, your beautiful wife, Laura? When was the last time you bought her flowers? No, it's not recent enough, man. Well, see, there we go. Why, why? And how come? Let's let's get into that. Forget the copy for a second. How come? <laughs> I mean, I buy all kinds of different gifts. Um, so flowers sometimes slips my mind. Uh, you know, we do have a rose bush in the back, so like you know, we got some pretty flowers coming in. But I don't make that intentional pursuit of it, though. Okay, I, I, I'm I'm looking to you for ideas, though. Of okay, where to go get them. Well, I have one, and folks, you should not copy Nick Zavera. You should be getting flowers for that special somebody that you love. And let me tell you a little bit about 800 Florals. There are roughly 20,000 professional florists in North America that design and deliver fresh flowers on a daily basis. 1-800-Florals is one of those. They've been around for more than 20 years. You can shop products, occasions, check out flower delivery. You can even arrange a thoughtful gift of monthly flowers for that special someone. You heard that, Nick? So you can set on auto subscribe here and get monthly flowers delivered to Laura's job and you'll be thought of highly over there now. Uh, all you got to do is head to our show notes page right now to find out more about 800 florals. There's a link in our show notes page. It'll take you right to them. Use that link and you're going to get a special discount when you check out and buy those fresh flowers. Check out 800florals.com today. All right. Our thank yous there to Ellie Honig. Uh, well, come on. You know how much we love Ellie. Amazing. The, the guy is so he has so many jobs. I, I joke. We joke about this with him off air. But to to think about it, Professor at Rutgers on television as a contributor. If you follow him on social media, he posted yesterday. He went down to D.C. He was taping something for his new book that's coming out. And then he was on Anderson Cooper. He's on the 9 p.m. show in the morning. He had been doing some stuff on the CNN morning show um, all over the media uh, space. And then 
has time to do the third degree podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcast. I encourage people listen to the last episode that was a note to the cafe community. And it's really about the New York AG and all the way she's campaigned about she's going to do this to Trump. She's going to do that to Trump. And then why wouldn't Trump plead the fifth if somebody ran on the on the basis of saying they're going to get you? And now here is time. And they're they got a civil suit, a criminal suit. You know, why wouldn't you plead the fifth? It's it's a great listen. I don't want to spoil it. So go check out that podcast wherever you get your podcast. Quick takeaways, high level from that before we get into our final segment and sign off here. Yeah, I really appreciate just the separation of you know, just understanding, you know, between a warrant affidavit, like Ellie take us took us basically through a workflow, but um, you know, how we go from what the DOJ had been doing leading up to you know, executing a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Mike, I think something he he hits on, but we didn't spend a lot of time there. You know, to go at this point to, to execute that warrant, so much had to have happened. You know, in a previous episode, Mike, you took us through a timeline, but what you were sharing are just these important timestamps of when these things were going. Ellie hits on the fact that this is just a continuous process. DOJ was working continuously in a way that almost seemed like they didn't want to do this. Like this was truly a last effort. You know, and for so many folks that we've heard on the right talk about this feels politically motivated, this feels like out of nowhere. Like that's a thing we're hearing. It's nonsense. This is not something capri- that that the attorney general capriciously says, let's let's move forward with. This takes a lot of work and there was a lot of investigation that led to a moment where there's just probable cause that says you have to you have to execute a warrant on this. Yeah, Ellie just took us through that. So I was just grateful for uh, for the explanation. But also, you know, I, I asked that question, too, of like there's multiple things going on on the legal front for Trump. Uh, what's the priority? He surprised me. I, I didn't think Georgia would rank as highly as it did, but that was the one that Ellie stuck with. Yeah, no, there was some surprising things there. Uh, Ellie's fantastic. Follow him on social media, too, on Twitter and IG. Uh, before we sign off here. A quick takeaway on something that may have went under the radar last week, if you weren't paying attention, Um, a New York Times article came out and a couple other subsequent publications have been writing about this. The term quiet quitting, for those not ready to make a grand exit, a softer approach may work. Um, I learned recently about this term through this article, you sending me this, but I think it's time to bring back our segment that we are calling She. Um, Nick, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I don't understand this phenomenon that's happening. So let me explain it for people that maybe don't know. Uh, many people feel perplexed. Why do you need a term to describe something as ordinary as going to work and doing your job, even if you're not doing it well? That's basically what it is. People that are envious that wish that they could quietly quit but believe they can never get away with it because of their race or gender. So this is the new movement now where people are doing a little bit less at their job, almost a quiet form of quitting, but not actually leaving your job. I saw this article and I thought to myself, she, um, yeah, I thought that I don't understand this. What is this? <laughs> Nick, are we are we too old? Are we too old? We're in our we're in Club Forty. You and I. I just recently got there. You've been here for a few years, scoping out the scene. Are we just too old and don't understand this? And it started from a TikTok trend, I believe. Uh, people were at least a few TikTok users with thousands of followers are talking about some of this and and how it's become a trend. I'm on TikTok. I didn't even know this was a trend. What is this, Nick? What is quiet quitting to you? You know, it's. I mean, there's another word I'm going to use here, which is zeitgeist. You know, sometimes an idea can culturally take hold, um, and sometimes you may you may not even know it or what it actually means. But Mike, if you if for anyone doing a simple Google news search, and I'm looking at my screen here, the following publications are currently all having an article devoted to this idea: uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Magazine, New York Times, L.A. Times, CNN, NPR, Time Magazine. Mike, those are all very reputable publications that are all dedicating space to this concept. And for the life of us, I don't know if it's necessarily an age thing, but this, it just feels odd. There's, folks, there's no data on this. This is just essentially 
I mean, this is rooted in like a TikTok video. We did dig into this a little bit. This is just folks talking about taking an approach to work. What I understand about this concept is the idea that rather than giving more than 100%, do what's asked of you at work. That's it as a way of trying to reduce stress in the workplace. Um, but again, there's no data that says that this is a trend. Like when we talk about global warming, folks, I like to bring up the fact that you're seeing off-season storms. You're seeing all kinds of stuff happening that is unprecedented in in, in our times when it comes to weather. Um, there's, there's truly a trend going on. This is just a damn TikTok video. And suddenly everyone has something to say about it. But it does speak to the fact that, you know, as a nation, we're all questioning this idea of work. You know, for anyone who's been fortunate enough to leave this country, uh, Mike, you've traveled out of the country. I've done the same. Our concept of work as a country is very foreign across the world. We are, as a country, the worst with taking personal time off. You have it available, often than not, and I'm guilty of this certainly. We don't take what our full allocation is. You know, as a country, we are driven by work, quote unquote. Um, and it comes often from a place of fear. You know, this idea is rooted in the idea of it's not worth going the extra mile because is your employer compensating you? And we've heard this argument about compensation from a few years back about the idea of internships, the idea of unpaid labor. And that's what this is coming back to. You know, what I'm seeing from all this is this idea that um you know, doing anything extra in your job, if you're not paid for it, is it worth it? You know, maybe pulling back from there is is the idea. Um, this is a generational thing. I've been, you know, <laughs> I've been employed for over 20 years, you know, a variety of different jobs. Um, Mike, I've never asked for a promotion at any time. And people can criticize all they want. That's usually career gain is not that's usually not the way I've done it. I've always uh, worked hard enough that I usually stand out. Fortunately, and then it's a question of, you know, do you want to take on more responsibilities? Do you want to make more money? That's a generational thing for folks like me. Um, and that's not the brag. That's just my reality. And I think, but it's rooted in the idea that I've never thought of giving any less. Um, the organization I currently work for, Educate, I'm going now into my 14th year. Um, I'm proud of the fact that no day ever feels like it's a given for me. Um, you know, I'm a big sports fan. Uh, my roster spot's not a given. I, at least I don't think so. Good I'm replaceable. <laughs> What's that? Good analogy. I like. Yeah, it. I, you know, not too long, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, re, uh, recently, sadly, the great Bill Russell passed away. Uh, Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics, you know, was known for you know vomiting before every game or every playoff game. I always forget this. You know, Russell was a 11-time champion. You know, had been is one of the most accomplished players in his sport in his trade, right? But no day felt like a given for that person. No day felt like you go in, punch your clock, you do your thing, and you're done. Um, it always felt, he always felt the need to do more, quote unquote. Um, it's the attitude I take, Mike, just objectively looking at your career path from the time we've known each other well over 20 years. That's been you too. You're a hustler. Like to do what's expected of you is not your behavior. You've done it in excess of it. Now, has that led to other opportunities? I would say so. But it also speaks to you as a person. Uh, and I'm not making judgment to anyone who says, you know, they do what they're paid to do and that's the end of it. That's cool. But that we're talking about a trend from a TikTok video right. uh, or anything that we're any type of thing that enters this, the cultural zeitgeist that's not based in any form of data. I call a question to it and it feels like content that we're just seeing media outlets pick up because it's that's what it's at the proverbial water cooler right now. Yeah. The media outlets also like ourselves talking about it. Uh, yeah. I don't get it <laughs> as we sign off here. I don't get it. But folks uh do your job do your job well you don't like that job find another job you may say mike it sounds easy right it is easy do or do not there is no try to quote yoda wrap it all in a bow in the star wars uh that, that we talked about in the last segment with ellie uh for this show video you want to listen to the fantastic or see the fantastic ellie honig our video youtube clips we've got all great content shout out to our producer Tim, for cutting all of this and dealing with us, uh, Acast, our hosting platform, we couldn't do it without them. Audio podcast platforms, you know them by now, Apple, Spotify, Google, please leave us a five-star review and comment. And also, October 27th, like we mentioned, live show, City Tap House in DC. Come on down, 5 to 7 p.m. We will be there 
doing our live show, having some fantastic guests on the program. We can't do it without the people that listen and watch this show. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. Have a good one, everybody. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.